This talk is supported by SmallPDF, the successful Swiss scale-up making PDF easy for over a billion people around the world since 2013. You may remember them from a previous podcast we hosted with their CEO, Dennis Just. Their mission is to make PDFs and life easy for people across the world, a mission made possible with their 90-plus amazing employees across Zurich, Belgrade, and Barcelona. If you want to join this fast-growing Swiss scale-up, visit smallpdf.com forward slash Swisspreneur and apply. A lot of people do not understand what it takes to be an entrepreneur. And you guys do a tremendous job in, in creating awareness because I think a lot of people see maybe the one, two big stories and then they associate it with some Silicon Valley story that they have heard about before. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Sandra, very well, welcome to the Swiss Pillar Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Hi, Silva. It's a great pleasure to be here. You're the co-founder and CEO at FutureAy Technologies, a startup providing future-proof end-user-centric authentication. Before we talk about your technology and your company, I want to start with your personal background. You studied international affairs, then went on to work for the World Economic Forum. So I wonder, what did young Sandra think her career was going to look like? I mean, my problem was that I always had so many interests that it was very difficult for me to choose one venue to go. Mm -hmm. um, that's why I was a generalist by default. Uh, I was always interested in technology, so that was a given. Um, but I was more seeing technology as a, like, a so so sociological driver than anything micro that I want to implement. So for me, the bigger trends were always, I think, my motivation why I looked into technology really early on. How do you then do that if you have that many interests? Do you just go out and try things out or what was your plan? Yeah, I would say I was always less the academic person than the one um, hands-on trying out things. So yeah. there was one way. So also as an entrepreneur, I enjoy most um, figuring out things by um, iterating over a course of times to, to move things forward. Right. And then you actually also put your foot into the business world in 2007, you started working for IBM. Was that sort of your start in the business, in the private sector world, or were there things that happened before that? Yeah, I mean, I wrote a, a thesis on um, infrastructure, how it's driving uh, change in emerging markets. Mm -hmm. And so this was a topic that I was very, very interested in. Um, and um, I went very analytically uh, into my choice of, of employer. I wanted to work in a global um, environment where I can also work in global projects, where I get to know the IT business end-to-end, -end. so from software to hardware to infrastructure. And so IBM was actually a logical choice and it was a very, very co cool time for me. That sounds like a very strategic approach of yeah. selecting your employer. Yes. I mean, in the end, it was um, a strategic approach to shortlist the type of organizations I wanted to be in. But mm -hmm. then it was very much a God's feeling, the environment I enjoyed in and um, that I think back then IBM offered me the perfect mix. And then you also switched to the startup world later on. Where does your entrepreneurial drive come from? Did you have any entrepreneurs in your family or other role models or people that actually inspired you to do so? Um, so the time when I lived in, in San Francisco in the Bay Area, I, I had the privilege to work with a lot of 
um, some of the most inspiring entrepreneurs, both from the Bay Area, but also from Switzerland. And that was most probably when I was exposed mostly to, to topics that they're dealing with on a daily basis. So it, it made it for the first time very tangible, what it is, uh, what it means to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say I definitely have some genetic precondition. <laughs> uh, I have a family of entrepreneurial uh, mindsets that I had very close uh, with me when I grew up. So yeah, th this was a natural thing for you then, right? It was never a deliberate choice. Okay. Um, so it really wasn't. I enjoyed a lot the intersection between um, technology and politics. It was something I, I did um, enjoy most. So um, do advocacy work for technology organizations in, in the public space. Mm -hmm. um, so this is something that, that I was intrigued by and I enjoyed a lot in my past roles. Um, or working on, on data privacy matters or things that have this intersection between society or uh, technology trends. Um, so it was never a natural choice, but um, I mean, as, as simple as it sounds, but it really happened, happened to me. So then please tell us, because you focus on cybersecurity, how do you get interested in that topic in the first place? I saw throughout my career that IT security was always a bit the, like scapegoat for many things, so that were not done properly. So, so IT security was to blame. Mm -hmm. um, but also more and more you have personalized services, you have self-services, you have digitization across all industries where it should be kind of an underlying element to um, making it right for the users, for us um, in everyday use. And so this massive contrast was a very interesting field mm -hmm. um, I saw for many years. And um, I had a lot of interest, as I said before, in privacy topics. Right. I, I had also um, led some of large security projects in the past. So I've seen how the old world with legacy products would not be able to keep up with this new world that was coming more and more. And that was when actually I met my two co-founders. And this is where the three of us uh, had our passion and still have our passion. And what also connected us to to change that and, and to kind of position how things could be done better. Yeah, please tell us how you met your two co-founders, Nikos and Claudio. How did that happen that you then ended up founding a company together? Um, as um, it is one of these coincidences, uh, we met through a common friend in Washington. Mm -hmm. um, they were both presenting in the Usenix conference, which is one of the top tier security conferences. Um, they were submitting, like they, one of their paper was accepted and to be presented, which was a big honor back in the days. And um, I initially um, tried to help them a bit evaluate if what their ideas are and their vision were um, would be something for a go-to-market. So they were not sure mm -hmm. if they want to productize it. And um, the better we got to know each other, the more we kind of was a natural fit. It was, again, never planned. I had an amazing time in the US. I was not planning to, to relocate to Europe at this moment in time. Mm -hmm. um, but we very quickly yeah, clicked and saw that we have a joint vision on how we want to also see the industry moving. And that's where we said, let's join forces and look if this has a potential and validate together. When did you then decide to move back to Europe and to Switzerland especially? I mean, I always wanted to move back eventually. It okay. was just not the moment that, that was planned. Um, so we gave ourselves, I, I think, a solid half, an, half a year mm -hmm. to validate, to have um, certain market feedback and market traction, and um, which we managed to get. And that was, I mean, I moved already actually early on 
backend called Tides. So pretty much from the beginning. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was a necessity because I can imagine with the time difference that would have made things pretty difficult, yeah. right? Absolutely. And um, at this moment in time, Force US was not a natural fit from a okay. market point of view. So it didn't really add that I was there or the network there. Mm -hmm. um, that's why um, we decided to, to do it out of Switzerland. I can imagine if, if I was in your situation, you know, living this life in the US, being super enthusiastic and enjoying it big time, that must have also felt a bit strange or like you're giving up something coming back for this strange startup idea that you don't know if it's going to fly or not. Did mm. you feel that you also gave up something or that you lost something with your life that you built in the US? No, not at all. Okay. Um, for me, I always had the possibility to work on projects abroad. So throughout my career, I was in a large IT project in India or in Argentina. And so for me, it was always opportunities. Like every of these single steps were, were more opportunities than like a chapter that is closing or something. So um, for me, it was really getting exposed to these two amazing like people that have this absolutely mind-blowing know-how in a specific field that you rarely come across. Mm -hmm. And um, since we also matched on a personal level, it kind of uh, naturally, it, it's, it's kind of a one-of-a-lifetime experience. I don't think I would have founded a company if it was not for the two gentlemen. Wow. So for me, it's, it was more, it was, again, never a natural evol evolution of my career. It was really for the topic and for the team that we have built that I decided to do it. Wow, that's like the the once in a lifetime opportunity. Look, there may be others potentially, but, but uh, back in the days, it was really, um, you know, when you found a company, you have to be immersed by the topic. You know that yourself. I mean, um, yeah. you you should like be passionate about that thing for years to come to put so much energy and of your personal time into it. And that was really one of these topics that I was so intrigued by and and so obsessed by also to to solve or to to dedicate my time to yeah. that's the best starting point you then said you have given yourself half a year to test the idea to validate it what did you exactly do and how were you then convinced with the traction that you built in that half a year to continue and actually move on with the company I mean, we gave ourselves a deadline to make sure we have a certain market validation. Mm -hmm. um, back in the days, actually, we were accepted to F10, to the accelerator program, which helped us tremendously um, okay. to kickstart because we were exposed in a high frequency to a lot of decision takers. And that was, I would say, one of the core components that gave us the speed um, initially to, to really narrow down a scope of product we want to spin out and mm -hmm. build. Um, but also um, to have already committed feedback from the market that they want to work with us, which in a security context is not so trivial. I can imagine. Yeah. And what were you exactly looking for? Did you sign any letter of intent? Did you already close any contracts or how did you validate your, your idea, basically? Yes, we had um, the luxury to close one large contract that year nice. um, and also a few letter of intent. Yeah. Yeah, that's strong traction right there. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, when we started, we didn't really know what worked. Like one of our first projects were in hospital, like in a hospital. Okay. Um, but then uh, we were really quickly uh, drawn into financial services. Mm -hmm. And this is also where we won our first customers. Fantastic. And tell us a bit more about the cybersecurity market back in 2016, because why was the timing right to get started in that year? What shifted? What sort of trends did you see up and rising? I mean, there were a few drivers. 
definitely it was the early days of cloud adoption uh, to the extent we see today with Office mm -hmm. 365 and the likes. Um, so back then the cloud was evil in financial services for many organizations. I can imagine, yeah. And also for many of our customers, we were the very first product that they deployed in cloud, which was not an easy thing necessarily. Uh, that's a big step to it's take. A, it's, it's very big. A lot of conviction, like contract frameworks are not uh, available because they, they don't have that concept of, of how to, to run cloud um, in, in their DNA. Mm -hmm. um, I would say mobile adoption is something that has been way longer uh, ongoing, but definitely was also a contributing factor that things like um, SMS authentication is not considered as secure anymore um, by large um, influential um, organization. So many of the highly regulated markets understood you need to invest in some more modern technologies. Mm -hmm. Then you have the larger trend of um, digitization of processes, as I mentioned. So um, not only because of the pandemic, you have um, a lot of organizations that understood it's not a nice to have to have a digital factory aside to try out digital pro processes and serving customers digitally. But um, more and more really decision takers understood it's it is the core of the future, how they're going to serve customers. And that's definitely something where um, they had to rethink entirely how do they do that in a secure way. Mm -hmm. uh, what are potential dependencies they have not come across before because it's it's a game changer and yeah and last but not least a regulatory environment i would say we had a lot of uh, regulations gdpr in the european union mm -hmm. so where you are fined as organization if you don't do things right, right where you for the first time have to report when you have data breaches of personal data of, of your customers which was not a given it's, it's still not a given in switzerland and <laughs> uh, we become most probably next year to that point right. Um, PSD2 in financial services, where our topic was mandatory. So these are all, I think, drivers that, of course, played into our hands. You said it's so easy on the side. It's a game changer because the, the real game changer is you don't really do identity uh, management yourself, but you actually build a whole platform yeah. around the topic. So please explain us a bit more. What makes your platform so unique that it's actually a game changer? So we do only this small, innocent layer of strong authentication, transaction signing and, and fraud detection around that mm -hmm. um, part. But it's actually, to a large extent, that little piece or that little layer that causes a lot of friction for users. So think of yourself when you have issues, when you have a new smartphone, you should get access again to your bank account, to your online retail shop. Difficult, um, yeah. And it's not working. Because that's one of these window of opportunities for criminals to get into, of course, if you don't do security right. Mm -hmm. And um, so this small layer of authentication typically causes in, I would say, more old school ways of doing it over half of all the support problems that those companies face. So it's a massive wow. issue in the industry. Yeah. Um, again, induced from security, but but of course the users are frustrated and it has um, repercussions on the relationship with the customers and um, ratings on the stores of apps and online shops, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, it's really one of these topics that causes a lot of friction. And as, as you rightfully so said, we don't do identity management. We're sitting on top of the identity that allows us to do things in a privacy-preserving way because we never know at no point in time who, you, who the actual users are mm -hmm. that we process the payment for or who we um, support of authorizing to get access to some sensitive information. And I guess... And this allows us to do a lot of interesting things because exactly. we do not know. 
I guess in, due to that setup that you don't have the personal data associated with your platform, you're actually allowed or even capable of collecting way more data around everything that's going on, right? I mean, it's data we collect that is in a hashed form. So we do not right. know in absolute term how it's related to each other or mm -hmm. how, what, again, who, who it is linked to. But it allows us definitely to do things like preemptively inform type of customers about potential fraudless activities or anomalies that we detect, again, before they potentially can detect it, because we can cross-correlate some of the information. And that's the power of, of it. But that's something also we, yeah, customers can choose to do or not. So we are sure. really, from that point of view, privacy first is what matters. Right. But in that regard, you're not only more secure because you also help them to actually save costs when it comes to the whole support area and you actually solve that by technology. Absolutely, yes. And we have a lot of different options how you can embed what we do. Mm -hmm. So you can embed it as, as so-called SDKs into uh, existing business apps. You can do that as standalone authenticator apps. You can do that uh, with hardware tokens. So we have a really broad range to serve some of the very tech-savvy users. Mm -hmm. So we work with, with some of the largest challenger banks in Europe, but also some of the maybe more conservative users, um, which can be private banks, which can be a citizen, citizen portal of a, of a region, of a public organization. So we really want to make life simple for the whole scale of, of um, people that use online services every day. Exactly. And that laser focus on the platform approach that you have, was that always there from the beginning? Or did you step by step also, you know, develop that and emerge into this laser focus? I would say the laser focus was always there, what problem we want to solve, mm -hmm. but how we solve it, there are different ways how to, to do it. Um, I think it, ha it became more granular and more pr precise over time. Um, that we also saw the potential, actually, what we can do even further. Um, it needed a certain critical mass of, of customers to be able to, to bring it to the next level. Right. You have assumptions, but you still need to test them. Of course. Mm. And yeah, talking about customers, who actually are your customers? You mentioned financial services were the first entry points. Who are your customers today? I mean, we started in financial services. Um, for instance, Six Group was one of our first customers. Um, so uh, really big name in financial services for us. Um, we, we have a lot of uh, retail banks, private banks, but also a lot of those large growing challenger banks uh, across Europe, which is really, really great because they have very different topics in security. Right. Um, but then we moved more and more into health. We have a lot of hospitals, online retail, online stores uh, or mobile stores, um, sh mobile shops online, um, but also um, university schools or insurance platforms, so customer portals, anything basically that is customer facing mm -hmm. in a digital way that uh, our customers need to secure. And in that regard, I wonder, there's a big, big challenge that you have to solve because you go B2B, right? So your customers are other businesses, but at the same time, the cybersecurity topic, that itself needs a lot of trust that you need to build there. So they have to really trust you to let you in and work with you basically. Absolutely. How do you do that? I would say one of the topics why, I mean, what customers tell us is definitely that we have some of the most talented people in, in the industry. Some of, I mean, most with academic background in that specific area, but also with a lot of industry background, um, which is very difficult to find. So you, you want to have some people like this 
close by in, in one way or the other. And we also not like, I would say, if you look at our team, we're not a typical software vendor that is very good in selling and PowerPoint, but really we have some of the best people also in support. Like you get a qualified person um, that is picking up the phone and, and instantly checking what, what has to be solved. It's not um, like the beta or, or gamma liga, right. <laughs> but it's really the top guys. And um, this is something that in security, it's a, it's a small ecosystem so word spreads and i think mm -hmm. we have a very good reputation in that space and this is also nice and what role does switzerland as your headquarter play in that regard i mean switzerland has a great reputation right when it comes to security and other things does it help you in any way as a company i mean um for some region it might be geopolitically helpful okay like we have some customers in the middle east um but on the other hand, it's also a lot more challenging to build a security company out of Switzerland. Um, we have not even a homogeneous market here, even less so in Europe, right. uh, compared to some of our main competitors come on from the US. There you have a homogeneous market, you have early adopter mentality. Um, we did have neither of, of those components. So I would say, I mean, me personally, I'm, I'm, <clears throat> it's for me an important topic to invest into a thriving security ecosystem. And I want to see a lot more successful tech companies, specifically in security, coming out of Switzerland, because I, I agree with you. I think it's a very strong brand and we, we should leverage it further. But if you have not even the largest entity of Switzerland, because they're more and more international mm -hmm. corporates, so decision-taking is sometimes in the US and guess who they go for? The American products that they know for. So it's not even the local brands that um, often work with, with local technology. And that's a bit, um, I think, also a foregone chance for us as a location to have value generated locally that a lot of young companies are forced to first move abroad to find some big name customers before they get some sort of credibility in the local market. Right. I mean, that was also a big challenge for you in the beginning, right? As a startup, a new company, how can you start acquiring big clients, you know, well-known financial institutions, etc.? How do you do that? Because they're also, again, of course, it's related to trust, but it's also very difficult to just be there as a startup and get the order in from a larger company. Exactly. And and that was where we also, there was also a lot of luck that we had some of these early customers that really trusted in our capabilities to to build um, the product and still do trust in us, so, which is uh, not a common thing. And yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. I think everyone in our space needs these early brave adopters that um, just want to see also a thriving local ecosystem and, and take a certain risk. Do you have any, any tip for anybody listening to this who might be in a similar situation? You know, mm. They say, we have such a great technology. We have an amazing software that we built, but the big companies, they just don't see it. We want to acquire them, but it's really difficult to get a foot in the door. What would you uh, recommend them to do? I mean, it's on both sides. You also need to do your homework. Right. Like many times you have deep tech companies that think, oh, we have the coolest technology mm -hmm. and everyone out there waits for us to come. Which is so, not the case. <laughs> which again, um, you need to be able to translate what you're solving in the markets to an industry lingo that um, it can be understood by, by your stakeholders and understand what go to market, how your product market fit works. Mm -hmm. So this is your home homework. Um, but when it comes to scaling, um, I think... 
what what I always say to to local companies when they still come, oh yeah, but how do I know if in five years you guys gonna still be around? Right. And then I, then I can quote some of the big American names that have not been around that are way bigger <laughs> than us. Number yeah. one, because they had data breaches, because there's other issues. Yeah. And number two, I always look at data. Um, if you look, for instance, just one example at um, ETH transfer data from ETH spin-offs, mm -hmm. I think in the last report it said over 93% of all startups in information technology are still around after five years, which is a super uh, high number comparatively. Absolutely. And I'm not saying that you should only partner up with, with ETH spin-offs, not at all. But I think in Switzerland we have a lot of B2B companies that are maybe not the hypergrowth path to mm -hmm. trajectory of a startup, but they will be still around because they really have their um, raison d'etre because they're solving a specific niche. And right. oftentimes they have also industry insights that maybe some of the fancy tech companies in, in the Bay Area doesn't have because yeah. they, they come out of school. And so it's a bit of a different ball game, but I would strongly encourage everyone to take out um, as much as you can by collaborating with early stage companies because worst case scenario, they go boss and you can hire them, which is not uh, a bad thing either because it's absolutely. Uh, if the you're talent close, that everyone looks for. Absolutely, if you're close, that's a huge opportunity for your company as well. Exactly. You spent quite some time in the US, so you've seen the local ecosystem. You just described the, the Swiss way of doing business where you might not like exaggerate and really you know have this whole marketing game to say how big we are, even when we might not be, but really do focus on the technology to do a good job to deliver. Is that something where we sometimes also undersell ourselves compared to the US competitors? Totally, we can be way better and we should do <laughs> our homework. All of the Swiss technology companies, they can learn so much from the US, absolutely. I mean, I see it in security. You have oftentimes like the big names, when you see how they started, they started with, sorry, nothing we would be comfortable going to the market with. Yeah. And then they get this massive funding rounds, they scale the, the thing, um, they invest in technology to kind of compensate some of those early uh, issues they had. And mm -hmm. then that's how they distribute like homogeneous market. Uh, then they go global. Um, at that stage, they typically have a market size where they can already purchase strategic partnerships uh, and it's just a different ball game and we can never come close to any of this because our ecosystem is just not so mature mature to attract early stage funds that are in the same league mm -hmm. um, but also not having this know-how that feeds back into into a vicious uh, into a virtuous cycle of of know-how with serial entrepreneurs and yeah it's it's just a different ecosystem is it more the game in the US from the way that you experienced it? Is it more like you're either going to make it big or you're going to break it and, you know, full like it just doesn't work and you break the company? While we here in Switzerland are more like, I do want to grow, but I also want to grow in a healthy way. So I'll probably just grow much slower and don't have these big ambitions as the US competitors might have. I wouldn't generalize it. Okay. They're very different stories. And right. I think I also strong, I, I'm, I like risk and I like to, to go big or, or not doing it at all. Okay. Um, I think it needs some stamina and, and a big vision to build sauce out of Switzerland in the mm -hmm. first place. Um, but 
in security for us specifically, I mean, we have a lot of organizations that trust us, um, over 110 by now, and I am not willing to jeopardize their trust for scale. This is something that is absolutely for me non, not, not an option. And yeah. from that point of view, in security, you might have different sort of risks um, you take then in, in maybe a social media platform or nothing against social no, no, media. No, of course. It's a, different, it's, it's a yeah, different, different product, different game. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Would you then say that in Switzerland, in order to get us, you know, to build bigger companies out of Switzerland, is it mainly a funding issue that we don't have these large financing rounds or what's the one thing that you would change if you could? If I would change one thing, again, I would create a, I would sprinkle an early adopter mentality over right. a lot of decision takers. I mean, a lot of people do not understand what it takes to be an entrepreneur. And you guys do a tremendous job in, in creating awareness because I think a lot of people see maybe the one, two big stories and then they associate it with some Silicon Valley story that they have heard about before. Right. But they don't understand how much personal risk people take, how much also... Um, yeah, financial risk people take and um, how many times things go bust and go bad and all the all the sad stories underlying mm -hmm. troubles you have. And I think, um, yeah, if, if you understand um, and are proud of things that happen locally, uh, you are a lot more willing to, to cheer from the sidelines and to be part of this. And um, even with small gestures, you can support early stage startups, to even to say no to someone because... There is a real reason behind not being nice. Sometimes it's better. Right. Um, and I think if I could change one thing, it's definitely to instill a bit of this um, yeah, positivity towards local technology. I love that because we have all the ingredients here that we need yeah. to make that happen. And also fundraising is growing. So mm -hmm. the numbers also for later stage are increasing. Right. I think a lot of things move into the right direction. Yeah the culture component i'm not saying it's it's a fault of someone but that's the one thing i would most probably look into yeah i also want to talk about an additional challenge that you encountered along the growth journey of your company it's called internationalization so you actually have an international team now so what were some of the biggest challenges of building your company not only in a remote first way but also in an international way by having employees in all different places i think it's um for us, it, we have been remote by default. Um, we want to give freedom to people's lifestyles, mm -hmm. how to do things. Um, but you still need to enable everyone being part of a team life. Um, so the people that are maybe physically more close to, to um, the company, but also the ones that are uh, remote most of the time. And, and that's that's a constant challenge. That's something um, I think a lot of companies have, not just because of the pandemic back. Yeah. Right. And how do you do that? Do you have like... Uh, you know, also fun activities that you plan in your remote settings or do you do like annual or have your offsets where you fly everybody in to have the physical interaction? How it's do you a do mix that? of actually both of that okay. um, to have in regular interval um, exchanges, also fully remote with the entire team to have the chance to, to also meet your peers in a, in a different environment, not just in the work context, mm -hmm. uh, but also having everyone together, I think is extremely important to have a personal basis. And can you share a bit more how you communicate internally in a remote setting? Do you do like, I, know I heard people doing like weekly update emails to the whole team. What works best for you to also ensure the communication in a remote first setup? We have different formats um, amongst, I mean, 
team leads amongst themselves have different uh, things that work out. Mm -hmm. um, we have weekly stand-ups, which is something similar um, where we get teams giving a brief, very high-level insight into the topics that are relevant for the entire team and to also put into context what your personal topic is in relation to that team Got presenting. It. Yeah. And anything on top of that, where you do like all hands or where you yeah, yeah. re-emphasize the vision and the goals that you set for the company or something like Absolutely. that? Absolutely. On top of that, we have um, town halls in a regular interval where we go deeper with topics. We have a lot of education sessions, uh, be it on privacy topics, on security topics, on latest, latest trends. Um, right. This is really also triggered by a lot of, of the team members um, that attend conferences or interesting topics. And uh, we encourage everyone to be part of it. Um, so it's it's very varied. The sort of um, we always encourage also to to reach out to peers to understand how others do things, to mm -hmm. learn, to grow together um, by learning from others how how they do things. So this this I think very strongly part of of the culture that we have. Cool. And one other part, if you acquire new clients, because you, your clients can come from all over the world, basically, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you decide what you do locally in that specific market? And what do you want to do in a central way where you say, these are functions or tasks that we do in a central location? I mean, the product innovation happens all centrally. Mm -hmm. That's um, the core of our technology. Um, when it comes to support, maybe um, in terms of how to best make use of our technology. That's something we could potentially do locally, mm -hmm. but more we want to build up partners that do that for us. So we would at most support our partners to be able to do that. Um, and then it's really distribution is of course locally, very much locally, um, but everything that technology is, is more dealt with in a central way. And how do you do that, the sales part? You mentioned the importance of partners. Do you do most of the sales still on your own with your own sales team or do you already rely on partners to sell your software? It's always depending on the industry and on the geography. Mm -hmm. um, but we move more and more to fully partner. That's definitely um, most appealing. Um, but again, it's it's also case by case. Um, right. Some markets work very well directly, so it's, it's very difficult to generalize. So yeah, you, you see what the market needs in that yeah. specific county and then you adapt. I think you have to. It's um, it's good to have a, a strategy and to build a model to implement it. But in the end, you also have to be flexible enough to understand market trends and yeah. um, what works best. And if you look at your current numbers, you said 110 companies are using your platform. You're mm -hmm. being used in more than 40 countries, which is crazy if you think about that. Most probably more than that. We don't even know at times crazy. where across the world users use us. Yeah. And the most mind-blowing thing for me was you have a 100% satisfaction rating. It sounds so fake. How is that possible? <laughs> yeah. And maybe I have to explain. We do second level support or third level support. So we are mm -hmm. never the ones picking up the telephone of like an online retailer a user who has an issue. Right. Um, so we are only coming into play once the issue is there was a triage and it's us being able to deal with the problem. Right. Um, so this brings it to a, a lot lower involvement we have with, with those customers and oftentimes also partners to um, the first level support or our customers directly. Um, but again, I think it um, stands and falls with the type of quality of the team that we have. Um, we are not one of these software vendors that is selling great stories and then has the, the juniors or the beta team with all my respect for juniors. I think it's super important to build up juniors, right. but to have the beta team, it's but we have really the, the cracks on the topic. So it's efficient how we deal with those problems. And that's what um, also 
we keep hearing from our customers that they really enjoy working with us throughout from sales to um, project to product team to support. So the simple answer is just an overall really great customer experience. Yes, I would say so. Absolutely. And of course, now we also wonder, what are your plans for the future? Like, what are the priorities and the things that you want to build and work on in the near future with your company? What's next, basically? I mean, we want to scale it to the next level, which for us means um, diving into new verticals, diving into new geographies, building at scale uh, a product Mm -hmm. and um, building the team along um, for the next phases. Um, for me personally, I want to see a thriving cybersecurity ecosystem in Switzerland. So um, I'm uh, very emotional in in building something that we, a few years ahead, look back and say, wow, this this was the foundation. A few companies made it. And um, this is something um, we can build upon for the next generation that is even better and more efficient because they learned from, from us, the earlier generations. Right. That's something that would make me proud. Great. To wrap up today's episode, we also prepared some rapid fire questions for you. So I either give you a few different options to choose from or a simple question and you have to answer in one sentence. You ready? Okay. The first one, how many hours of sleep did you get last night? There was a storm, maybe six hours. Yeah, a storm is not good for sleep. <laughs> what makes you smile? A lot of things. I mean, we smile. We have a very bad company culture when it comes to jokes. <laughs> Like there's nothing too dark or... (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess all these intelligent employees, they come up with the cool stuff. Also the funny jokes. (laughs) Of course, of course. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think that's a very good environment. What helps you to relax and recharge? A lot of my friends do very different things than tech. And I need that contrast in my life. Uh, Great. And where do you go to think if you have a big problem to solve? My terrace. Great. Ideally, coupled with some sun, I guess. Yes. Even rain, it's fine. Okay. Doesn't it, gives me, it gives me the necessary distance to things. Great. And the last one for you. When was the last time you actually changed your mind on something? Ha. Huh. I mean, oh, in one sentence, it's a tough one. Um, it's okay, you can also use more than that. Yeah, I think I'm a very emotional public transport user and I always try to optimize. I'm always 10 minutes behind schedule and I was to try to optimize so I change constantly my mind which transport I take to be in time. <laughs> <laughs> it, it worked very well. You were uh, well ahead of time today. You don't know what was behind. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> yeah. Sandra, thank you so much for stopping by. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Lots of success and all the best for the future. And we're very excited to see what you're building with your company. Thank you, Sylvan. Good success to everything you do as well. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.